Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. The Prime Minister continues to get hammered about why he didn't start a Canadian production deal before a year out of COVID-19 hitting Canadian shores. The UK can produce a vaccine. Why can't Canada? Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us to talk about the various variants and how they are the white elephant in the room. And an engineering scholarship for black students at McMaster University breaks new ground. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, eagerly waiting for the announcement on when I can go back to school. Although, I was enjoying having my dog join me during online learning. Can I bring him with me? He has helped me with math. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. All right. As I mentioned, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has announced a tentative agreement with uh, a U.S. company called Novavax that could see Canada producing its own vaccines uh, by the new year. This is a major step forward to get vaccines made in Canada for Canadians. Pending Health Canada approval, Tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. Uh, that's good news, of course, but why did we not do this back in March and April when companies like Providence Therapeutics said, you know, uh, we're just a couple of weeks behind, a few weeks behind uh, uh, Moderna and Pfizer. We can produce this stuff. The premier said on uh, his news conference yesterday, uh, he said he doesn't want to take shots at the feds, but... You know, we've got the capability of doing that, and had we focused on that a year ago, we'd be in a completely different situation. So, uh, again, the size of your portfolio not really counting uh, when we don't have licensing agreements to actually produce it here. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and he is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing all right. How are you doing there, my friend? I'm I'm doing pretty good, but you know, I, I must say I'm uh, I'm a little ticked off at all of this because it seems that uh, it's taken a long, long time for these stories to finally uh, rear their ugly head. And uh, if you listen to Sir John Bell out of the UK, we could have been here a year ago had uh, the Prime Minister taken a different uh, trajectory and, and not chased the CanSino deal uh, out of China. What are your thoughts about these latest developments? Well, I, like you said, Scott, we'll be awash with vaccines in 2022. <laughs> I mean, and that's yeah. great, uh, but I, we need them that look. Um, I think the government is trying to create this sense that, uh, look, we'll get there. And then maybe we will get there. I think we will get there. And don't worry. But I, I think they're hoping that will um, obliterate the frustration that I think is creeping up in many sectors, many parts of the country about the, the vaccine challenges right now. So great. We'll have a great warehouse and storehouse of vaccines because we may need to be vaccine vaccinated like the flu um, for a couple of years to come, but doesn't solve much now. And government's kind of hoping Canadians will remain patient with them. And I think, as I said to you last week, the thing they're really hoping is they make that 
end of March target of 4 million and the vaccine distribution is not interrupted after that. If they, for them, if they think that if they can buy some time to get there, they'll probably be happy, but they need to be nervous now because people are frustrated. Uh, why not do a production deal right at the beginning of all of this? I mean, again, yesterday in his news conference, the prime minister threw other past pre- uh, prime ministers under the bus uh, and it didn't even say past governments. He said past government, uh, you know, was responsible for this. Yet for the first year of the pandemic, he's been doing the exact same thing that the past prime ministers have been doing. And that's avoiding creating production capacity here in Canada. Yeah, he, look, he can't wash his hands of responsibility either. There's been a strategic decision made since Mr. Cretchen's era not to have brand name pharmaceuticals manufacture in Canada. We changed policies and took a direction because we believe in the just-in-time delivery system and that it would withhold any sort of challenge. So he's equally as responsible as everybody else. It's fine to blame others. Uh, even a year ago, maybe, look, he, they, they said they were trying to uh, accelerate this building of the facility, in, or the, sorry, the activation of the facility in Montreal. That's on them. That didn't happen. So, again, I think what Trudeau is trying to do, and uh, he's not alone in this, other other premiers uh, who've been criticized and things are just trying to throw out so much information that people just lose track of, of the train of thought. Lucky they have you, Scott, to keep it all together. Well, you know, uh, again, talking about this research facility in Montreal, that was initially set up for the CanSino deal. Right, and where they banked too much in that Japanese business, and, of course, that didn't pan out. I mean, Chinese, you have, I mean. To take risk, uh, to have to take risks and all of that, but some of the, 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 the early choices they made around risk didn't don't appear to be, have been the best ones. Um, but, again... You know, I, I don't think this is yet fatal to them, but they, they, they ought to realize, they ought to realize, sorry, I was just going to say, Scott, they ought to realize that people are getting more frustrated. The patients we had even before Christmas, the relief that came before Christmas about there actually being some vaccines is fading away quickly. So why spend those early months of, uh, of last spring doing a deal uh, with, with China's CanSino only to have the intellectual property walk away and the Chinese Communist Party pull any of the vaccine from going to Health Canada for testing, so the deal's dead. So why, why spend that production time coming up with a deal with, the, with, the, with China rather than doing a deal with Canada. I mean, we had the CEO of Providence Therapeutics said they were banging on the door back in March and April saying, we can do this, we can do this. Uh, so why do the deal with China, but not with a Canadian company or even a U.S. company, as we have done now, finally, with Novavax? Well, and interesting, just to give you some context, if you go look at the PPE deals that have been done, uh, Canada has taken a few flyers on companies that are new to the industry uh so they they have had an experience in the pandemic in key components of pandemic management in taking flyers but it seems when it came to vaccines they were looking to buy from established brand names all of the big players as you know have vaccines either approved or an approval process i guess that's the bet they made and right now that's uh that's causing them some frustration because of the way the supply uh, chain is set up
So uh, I guess the saving grace will be if all of this mass uh, influx of vaccine uh, vaccine happens before the end of March. Is that what this government is gambling on? That and I I think they're hoping as well that we're and this is probably more of a fingers crossed thing that um, we don't get walloped by the variants um, between now and and the end of uh, end of March. Uh, that from a political perspective, I'm sure, and a broader public health perspective, that's likely what they're they're hoping about. But I think, yeah, they're putting their eggs in the basket of uh, late March and April and May, so that when people have gotten through winter, there are actually vaccines, there are actually lineups, there are visuals of all of this happening. Uh, that's where I think they're headed. I think that's that's their game plan um, because they have really no other options right at the moment because you can't snap your fingers and have domestic production because of uh, of, of of what we've discussed already and supplies are delayed because of what we've already talked about. How is this going to fly with Canadians when the U.S., who Canadians were quite smug about, look at them down there with that Donald Trump, uh, have now gone to zero and 100 in a couple of seconds flat, have already uh, vaccinated already more people than there are in Canada, and they've got one million doses vaccine going to U.S. pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS. They're in the pharmacies, Tim. We can't even get them in the province. I almost feel like driving across the border to Watertown, New York, and asking for a shot myself. Yeah. I mean, like that's not, like Canadians, that's not going to sit well. No, exactly. So that's why the frustration is there, because now we're seeing and and they don't they can't point. You know, Trump isn't providing the distractions because he's not there. So there's not crazy other crazy pandemic stories. It looks like the U.S. is more orderly now. So they don't have Canada doesn't have the benefit of the the Trump distraction and the point at him. And the the Trudeau likes like that comparison. Hey, look, they're cracked in the U.S. We've got this people. You can't even believe what's happening there. So that's gone. It's just going to up the pressure. Um, My bigger worry is, though, we delve into too much partisan politics. I don't blame Premier Ford and other premiers for saying to the federal government, this is not good enough um because it's not but i think we also have to watch for the gratuitous politics around all of this because i with maybe one or two exceptions in my neck of the woods atlantic canada there's no one government that can say hey we've done a great job through the pandemic so that's my concern we get into the polarization and public health gets lost but i hope the public doesn't let that happen I'm just very frustrated by the lack of transparency and the fact that none of this really seems to get shaken down. Because at the end of the day, what's happened here, Tim, is during those critical months of March and April, when people were banging on the doors, for some reason, the prime minister was doing a deal with China. Like, why would you even want to do that? And, and, and again, he's he's glazing it over every time we talk to him. It's always about the portfolios, always about. And he's just not telling people the truth. And I think that's what's got uh, the majority of people upset is he's selling us this bill of goods. And it's just the bottom's dropping out. Yeah. People's BS barometers are broken now. They've had enough. Right. They had. Yeah. They've, this, it's almost a year. It'll be a year next month that we've been fully in this, that our lives have been fundamentally altered, that we've lost relatives. We have had friends who've had suffered, that we don't get to see our friends. It's been a year and people are, are at the point we live in the 21st century. It's 2021. We're a G7 country. How the hell are we in this state of affairs? And that 
is bubbling over now. It may gush out if there are not uh, a reasonable amount of vaccines in this country and getting in people's arms by the time we get near that one-year mark next month. Where do you see this going? I, I, I think we're getting to this point, right? I, I, where do I see this going? I think, uh, I, I think March becomes a critical month, uh, and I think the government really could have some challenges with uh, the federal government around credibility and around maintaining unity of purpose with the provinces if they don't get the supply chain fixed. I think the supply chain gets fixed, then a lot of this like, will get forgotten. It's our conversation, Scott, about long-term care. Remember how that was the main thing in the first days of the pandemic? It pops up every now and then, but you know, it, it was the immediate issue of the day. This is the immediate issue of the day. It's probably the issue that touches more people than long-term care. Long-term care is no less important. But if there is a flow and a supply, I think they uh, they, they get off with their knuckles wrapped and not a real metting of accountability. What about getting all of these deals in writing? And, you know, exemptions, we're hearing about uh, the stuff that's being exported. Well, our, our supply comes from Europe, obviously. And that they're talking about restrictions. Uh, we're not on exemption list. The prime minister says, don't worry, that's all covered. Uh, the reporter asked him yesterday, point blank, do you have it in writing? And and there was a pregnant pause there. Uh, your thoughts on on getting it in writing and what we know? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a finer point and it would be ideal i mean we we have it in writing that we're supposed to get vaccines at a a certain date and time and apparently we we, though none of us have seen that uh that contract allegedly has been breached we have international trade agreements i I mean i think the prime minister could have dealt with that answer a little bit better i don't think he's ever going to get it in writing and they're going to try and go with moral suasion i don't know if getting it in writing makes a, a damn difference at the moment but certainly uh, makes the prime minister look um, not as able as he would like to look with the Canadian public right now. Uh, Let's talk about question period. And uh, we've certainly seen uh, the activity this week and and from opposition and such. And the prime minister is not in the House of Commons. He's uh, doing his uh, his thing remotely. Do we know why that is? Uh, I do not. Well, sorry, they changed that they you know how all the there was a big hullabaloo just before what was in the fall about attendance and people wanting more people to be in attendance they had an agreement about uh, an agreement was established just before parliament came back a week or so ago about the number of people who go in and out of the house so i i think it's nothing more than that agreement. but he's the leader tim he's the leader yeah, uh, you know, you want to uh, you want to take an MP out. That's OK. But, you know, uh, there's the opposition uh, hammering him this week and he's sitting in his office hiding from it all. Why is he not in the House? And it can't be a, yeah, well, a, a okay. capacity issue because they get someone else to sit outside, not they, the they leader. Could. I, I don't know. I don't know what their strategic thinking is around that. I don't get as offended as, as others do around that as long as he's there and he's answering questions because the rest of us are doing it virtually uh, i mean justin trudeau's got a lot of um marks against him right now as management of over this i'm not going to get too fussed about that but you, you make an argument that the symbolism of him being there and the visuals of, of him standing up in the house as opposed to sitting in his home that we pay for uh answering questions uh, maybe isn't to his uh, advantage 
And is it not easier to uh, uh, accept or deflect these questions when you're not even in the same room, you're sitting behind a screen? That uh, that environment, that atmosphere is a lot more secure in one's home than it is sitting in front of the house and having to uh, account for things. Well, uh, exactly. I mean, that does work to his advantage because uh, he, like others in the past, can get a little irritated or a little flippant with answers. Now's not the time for him to be that way. So (laughs) perhaps they have him chained down in his home so that uh, he can have a more consistent prime ministerial disposition, as they say, as he uh, manages all of this. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. Here's today's daily commentary. Canada has finally announced its first deal to produce a COVID-19 vaccine on Canadian soil over a year after the pandemic first arrived on our shores and a year after other countries like the UK decided not only to buy their vaccines, but also the rights to produce them for themselves rather than relying on other countries like we do. Early on in the spring of last year, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was only interested in a production deal with China's CanSino, not in other Canadian companies or even from the U.S., like Novavax, the deal that has just been signed. Again, when challenged by reporters on vaccinations, Justin Trudeau goes back to his file answer of it was the last governments who allowed this all to happen. What happened in the 1980s was a free market that allowed big pharma biz to come and go, and they went because Canadian governments were not giving them the incentives to stay, just like other industry. So we are where we are. Governments don't make life-saving vaccines. Private industry does. But Justin Trudeau has been just as short-sighted as those prime ministers of the past, because the PM had no interest in a Canadian production deal last year, when it counted. Just like those PMs he is throwing under the bus for his mistakes... He did the exact same thing, and that is why there is a shortage of production here today. I'm Scott Thompson. The U.S., uh, and we all know how much they were struggling, are announcing that next week they're putting vaccines into pharmacies. Uh, Whether it's a Walgreens or a CVS, uh, uh, 6,500 Uh, pharmacies across the country will start now administering uh, the COVID-9 vaccination in America. Talk about going from zero to 100 in two seconds. Uh, And they're planning on shipping more of these uh, vaccines to pharmacies as they can ramp up their production uh, in the United States. Uh, Let's bring in Jim Kreslua, and he is a CBS News correspondent and is with us now. Jim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I am, Scott. Hope you as well. So give us a little update on, on, on what is going on in the U.S. Uh, where is the U.S. as far as vaccination? What percentage of the population do you have vaccinated? Basically, I think nationwide, roughly about 10%. Now, some states a little higher, uh, several states a little lower than that. You're talking about the Biden administration, Scott, sending vaccines next week out to pharmacies across the states. They hope initially to send out about a million COVID-19 vaccine doses again within the next week or so and as you mentioned going to 6500 stores nationwide the hope is eventually within a few months about 40,000 retail pharmacies 
And again, you mentioned Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid. Uh, they would get this in addition to pharmacies in stores like Target, Walmart, and, and grocery stores that have pharmacies as well. So, yes, this is a huge ramping up of this. Uh, many people here in the states feel that the Trump administration really dropped the ball on this whole thing, the, the vaccine thing. It appears that your uh, the challenges we're fi- uh, facing here in Canada is distribution isn't an issue when we get it. It's a case of supply. It seems it's the other way around for the United States. Got lots of supply. The challenges are in the distribution. That's right. Initially, remember, uh, when they started distributing distributing this, the vaccine across the country, companies like FedEx, UPS, even the United States Postal Service got involved in this. They were the initial ones to, to do this. So it's obviously uh, been broadened. And, and uh, in many cases, there are many private entities now helping with the, the distribution. The National Guard has been brought in to help out. Again, one of the issues, of course, with the Pfizer vaccine is the fact that it's got to be kept so incredibly cold and that's an issue if for no other reason in rural areas because a lot of the small town hospitals and hospitals in in rural communities simply scott don't have the type of freezers needed to keep that particular vaccine as cold as it needs to be it's amazing how jim your situation in the united states has turned around so drastically since the inauguration i mean we certainly know uh the situation with with the increasing deaths and such and now it just seems that you're vaccinating at a lightning speed very much so remember joe biden promised that 100 million doses the first 100 days in office now will they be able to achieve that Uh, well there's some say yes some say no but this certainly the coronavirus vaccine situation has been a big focus of his first now couple of weeks in office, especially, as I say, the, the widespread condemnation and criticism of the Trump administration's handling or lack thereof of the initial vaccine distribution. Uh, what, what last question here, Jim? I know you got to run. Um, obviously, for Canada, we neglected to uh, to secure production deals until very recently, uh, yeah. and and have let this slip away. This industry slip out of our country uh, by not providing uh, uh, you know an environment to attract these companies uh, to Canada. So we're facing. Uh, we don't make the stuff. We don't. We, we've got a production issue, uh, and we're getting all of our stuff from Europe. Is there any chance? Have you heard any inkling that? Something could come out of that plant in Cam- uh, Cam- uh, Cam- uh, uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and, and sneak it across the border once you guys get up and running. Yeah, that's not that very far away, is it, from from the border? But again, you know, run it across Michigan and and let yeah. it cross the border at, at, at Detroit into Windsor. But uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's a possibility. Certainly, Scott, and you have to think that these production facilities are running uh, up and running as, as hard as they can in terms of making this vaccine as fast as they can. Jim Crisula has been with us, CBS News correspondent, giving us an update on what is happening south of the border. Jim, thank you so much for the time and insight. Be well. You as well, Scott. Good to talk to you. Stay well and stay healthy and stay sane. I think that's the hardest of all. Yeah, I hear you. Thank you for that, Jim. Uh, You be well. Uh, Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great, thank you. So uh, we're getting information now from the United States that uh, this week, uh, one million doses 
uh, or sorry, next week, one million doses are going to U.S. pharmacies, uh, Walgreens, CVS, and such. Uh, talking about forty thousand uh, soon, and even at your local Walmart store. How do you think Canadians are going to view this when you know next week they're going out to pharmacies to get their shots, and, and we don't have anything here? Yeah, well, of course, they're not going to be thrilled. Uh, and uh, I will say that ultimately, as this year progresses, it will come to the Shoppers Drug Mart or the Rexall near you, mm-hmm. and you will be able to get a shot there. So when we get to the point that we're not going after the targeted populations, but we are now starting the broad approach, it will be there. But I don't think that's going to happen in Canada, uh, at least until the end of March, if not into April, because we just don't have the supply of vaccine. And the announcement yesterday, is an, and it's a great announcement, it piggybacks actually on something the government announced in the summer of 2020, that they were going to, through the National Research Council, build a factory in the Montreal area. It was going to have two purposes. It would have a pilot plant that could produce 250,000 vaccines a month as part of a demonstration project, not specifically to COVID, just to have a, a vaccine production center. And then there would be a plant attached to it that could produce in a bigger volume. Well, what's become more important, clearly, is the bigger plant. So they've slowed down the work on the pilot plant and sped up the work on the other. And we know that's going to come online probably in July. Uh, Then, of course, once you get the plant built, you've got to make sure that it meets all the health codes and what have you. So we're going to see vaccine, Canadian-made vaccine, start to hit the market this fall. I understand a little late. Actually, we we've been told, and and and, and Minister Champagne said that the vaccines aren't going to roll out of that till January 2022. There you go. So it takes even longer after you finish the construction to do all the the uh, uh, inspections to make sure it works. So a little late, I get it, a little late. But this wasn't even a capacity that we had in Canada. Uh, in the meantime, we've been on the phone with the people in Europe to try to make sure we're getting those vaccines. I understand that the European vaccines, they're going to tick up next week. They've now you know, got whatever they had to get done to produce more vaccine, and our shipments are going to go back to the old levels. And then again, the hope is to continue to expand that in the month of February. So, yes, I know it's a race with the United States, and a moment, at this moment it's a race we're losing, but um, I think in the fullness of time we'll get there. So uh, why not, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister talks about the size of, of the portfolio and the amount of vaccines we have uh, in the future. Why not have a production deal uh, in those in some way, like the one that was signed with the U.S. company Novavax uh, just this week? Why wait a year to do this? And, you know, we, we talk about we had no capacity. Uh, the U.K., Sir John Bell has said, uh, Canadian working in with the uh, the uh, Oxford uh, vaccine in the UK yep. said they were in the same position that Canada was, but they made that decision back in March and April to to focus on production as well as buying the vaccine. Why were we not working on production deals like a year ago? Yeah, I, I, uh, good question, and I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, we, we at that point, of course, we weren't sure where the va- where the disease was going. We weren't sure a vaccine would be ready. You know, I I have to remind people the fact that we're talking about a vaccine less than a year after the disease appeared in Canada is phenomenal. Normally, it takes three, four, five years, and it might be simply that based on past experience, we thought, well, production, we're going to have time to deal with that. Let's focus on treatments and curing and those sorts of things and we'll we'll worry about the vaccines down the road uh, maybe getting them done as quickly as we did caught us off guard when that decision was made and you have to go back actually 
to previous administrations. This wasn't the Trudeau administration. I might even be before Stephen Harper to to not have a capacity here in Canada. What do we need that for? We can just sign partnerships with others. It it just never crossed our mind. Now I I feel good. I feel good. The Canadian government has uh, formed partnerships with seven different groups developing vaccines. At this point, only two approved in Canada. Two more are actually presenting their data to Health Canada, and I think they'll be approved before the end of the month. Novavax, which is the one he talked about yesterday, doesn't have its data yet, and it will not be one of the ones even approved in this month. They're still doing their worldwide trials and gathering the data that they give to Health Canada to get approval. And by the time we get to May, April, May, I think we will actually have seven different vaccines out there. And if you look at the amount we've contracted for, we've actually, Canada's contracted enough to give us all 10 shots of vaccine in the fullness of time. We just don't have them now. And that's after having locked down for a year, we've all got COVID fatigue. And, and as, the, as your previous guest was talking about, sort of a, a COVID mental health impact, we want everything now. We'll get them, but we've got to be patient another few months. Um, the Prime Minister in his news conference yesterday pointed to past Prime Ministers, past governments who let this industry slip away. And, and again, it's, it's, it's private companies that make vaccines, not governments. It's up to governments to make uh, an environment that's conducive for, for them to be here and, and want to set up shop here. Um, and again, we know what happened in, in the free market system in, in the 80s, and, and eventually, well, they could come or go, so they went and they didn't come back because there was no incentive to do so. That being said, there was the incentive a year ago to do this. Yep. So is the Prime Minister not making, or did the Prime Minister not make the same mistake that he's now accusing other Prime Ministers of and I, I by waiting till a year out and to sign a, a production deal? Yeah, I think the answer is yes, uh, but I'm just wondering if the reason why he made the mistake was that we just didn't think a vaccine on this timeline was appropriate. So he was focused on other aspects of dealing with the disease, thinking that it might take three years to get a vaccine. I, I can't say this enough, that this vaccine has been developed in record time. We've never seen a vaccine. I'll give you a simple example, Scott. Uh, another thing, human immuno, immunodeficiency virus, HIV, and of course AIDS that attached with it. We have been looking for a vaccine for HIV for 30 years and we've not found one. We never did find a vaccine for SARS. We never found a way to do this. So I don't think people should get it in their head that every disease there's a, an injection for, a vaccination for. It was possible we could go looking for a vaccine and not find one or it could take five years. So I think what the government was focused on a year ago, even though you're right now in hindsight, well, you should have signed a production and get a plant built, uh, you know, too sweet. I think they were looking more that it was going to take longer to do it. And now that we've got where as fast as we have, yes, egg on the face. And again, I, I, you know, I don't think anybody expects miracles. Nobody's, I think what we're just looking for here is, uh, is transparency. And, and again, nobody expects anybody to pull a rabbit out of their hat. Yep. But I, I think we, I think a lot of Canadians expected to be where other, you know, countries are like us, as opposed to be falling farther and farther and farther down this list. Uh, with each passing day till this, whenever the mass influx comes in, whether it's uh, the end of March or, or, or whenever. I think we just want to be where everyone else who's like Canada is. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's unfair to say, gee whiz, we're, we're losing the battle here. We made some mistakes. Yeah. So let me, let me also note that uh, there's also a cost to having this capacity uh, at ready. 
In other words, um, to have a factory capable of, of producing these vaccines and the volume that we're going to need them, great. What do we do five years from now? We're not still going to be vaccinating people against COVID-19, and hopefully this is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. In other words, that we don't have a new pandemic every three years and need the factory. So to have a factory capable of producing at this volume but not having anything to produce because we don't have a pandemic at that moment, there's going to be a cost to keep it on, I call it, hot standby. You know, keep that plant yeah. going. Don't shutter it down. Don't go anyplace else with it. Uh, and so this is where the government, again, is going to have to throw some money at this, whether it's research grants, to keep it, keep it going between the times we need it. Uh, it's a bit like the PPE. Why don't we make our own pro, uh, uh, personal protective equipment in Canada? Well, we weren't needing it on the scale that we needed it last year. It, whatever we needed, we could easily get from existing suppliers. Now, yes, in hindsight, if we had known we were going to need, uh, each of us were going to need five masks a week and multiply that by 38 million people, Boy, what a wonderful opportunity, but it won't be an ongoing opportunity. And so this is where the private sector tends to respond to demand. If the demand goes away, they go away. Where government can play a role is to keep a productive capacity, even when it appears we're funding a loser because we may need it one day. And I think that's another challenge we've got when it comes to vaccine production. And maybe, you know, it's odd that we faced all of the these same issues that we're facing regarding vaccine production and shortage of as we, we did with P, P, uh, PPE in the first wave of this. So, again, you think you think maybe they learned from the PPE and thinking, how is a vaccine going to be any different? If anything, it's more valuable than PPE. Yeah. And, and so I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Uh, I think he felt that when he announced in May of last year that this new facility was going to be built in Montreal. So yesterday's announcement was who was going to use the facility. That's Novavax. But the facility itself was actually announced in May of last year, uh, and it was going to take two years to build the, to build the facility. They've now sped that up by, by sort of putting on hold the pilot plant project, taking all the resources that would have gone to the pilot plant, diverting that into the main factory, and speeding that up. To go from nothing to having a factory in a year, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, why didn't he do, do that in March rather than in May? Well, you know, again, hindsight 2020. Uh, I, and I and this facility credit, is really, this, this facility was meant for the CanSino deal. It could have been. It was being built through the National Research Council of Canada. So this was a, going to be a factory that was controlled by us through the National Research Council, and then I think the plan was different companies could could rent the plant when they had something they wanted to make there. It might have been CanSino. Now it's Novavax. After Novavax goes, it could be somebody else. But that we, the taxpayers, would in, invest to have this factory at the ready and then uh, uh, sign a licensing agreement with a private provider as we needed it. But again, we're getting it built, but it, none of this happens quickly. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. I will. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infections, diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. And he is with us now. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, not bad. Thanks for having me on the show. I was watching you earlier on on uh, television. You were talking about the variant being the elephant in the room. Uh, what are your greatest concerns at this stage of this pandemic? Uh, so from a Canadian standpoint, there's two things. 
Well, actually, that's not true. There's a million things. But related to the variant, the two things are, uh, number one, a more transmissible form of the virus. Uh, that's the variant initially discovered in the UK or, or the B117, uh, as it's also known, uh, because that just means it's harder to it's harder to get this under control. It means that even though cases are going down now, it'll be harder to maintain that, not if, but when that variant starts to take more of a foothold here in Canada. So that's the first issue. And the second issue are other variants of concern, namely one that's discovered in South Africa and the other one that was initially discovered in Brazil, uh, that, make, that make the current vaccines uh, less effective. They still work, but they're just less effective. So more transmissible virus, less effective vaccine. We've got to be careful here. We remember when we heard of the first uh, variant, uh, the the UK variant, that um, there was some concern initially, but then uh, people like yourself felt, you know, we, we're still in pretty good shape. The the vaccines seem to handle this. But as more and more variants have come out, are, are you more concerned about that than you were initially? In all fairness, I'm simultaneously concerned, open-minded to new data, and skeptical all at the same time. But it mm. still means proceed with caution because we got to be humble. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. This is, it won't potentially impact our epidemic. It will impact our epidemic. It is impacting our epidemic already. We've got to be careful here. Um, you know, I'm not doom and gloom. I just think we have to take it seriously. Um, for example, the, the one that uh, transmits more easily, we've already seen pretty big outbreaks of this. You can see how it rips through uh, long-term care facilities, how it can rip through an industrial setting. And like, it's, it's, it's moving its way through Canada. Like it's going to take a foothold here. We're going to see more of this. It's just harder to keep it under control. We've got to take it seriously. The other thing though, is even though with that variant, the vaccine should work just fine. The other variants, the vaccine is a bit less effective. It doesn't mean it's not effective. It just means it's a bit less effective. All it tells us is number one, it's going to be harder to keep the rates of infection in the community continuing to decline, especially even more so if places start to reopen. And number two, we've got to vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. We've got to vaccinate like mad. We've got to get vaccines quickly into the country and then distributed into people's arms as quickly as possible. Because even with some of the variants with less efficacy against the vaccine, um, or said it the other way, it's, it's still going to work. We're certainly seeing numbers come down across Canada with the new cases, and you almost get the feeling, at least, you know, and this is from, you know, a layperson standpoint, that with the cases going down without the new variants, we'd be in a, a very positive situation. But now, obviously, with seeing these cases go down, you're seeing governments trying to struggle with, you know, we're hearing about Quebec starting to loosen up uh, their restrictions a little bit. How do you balance all of this, uh, considering cases are going down, but you're concerned about the new variants? Yeah, I think, like, by all means, it doesn't mean we need to be in perpetual lockdown. And in a perfect yeah. world, we shouldn't be in we shouldn't be in lockdown. Lockdowns are preventable in the first place if you are able to really quell outbreaks before they spiral out of control. But I think if you're in the process of reopening, you should really ask yourself some important questions. One is, do you have the testing capacity to do this? Do you have the contact tracing capacity to do this? Do you have the capacity to isolate people uh, in a short time frame if they need support isolating so they don't isolate in a home where they infect a bunch of other people. You know, is your hospital, is your healthcare system 
ready? Like, do you have the healthcare system to cap- uh, capacity to accommodate a surge in cases? Like, there's a lot of things that I think you have to have in place to do so. And then, of course, you have to open at the right time and at the right pace. And it doesn't mean you flick a switch and, you know, you've got everyone packed into restaurants and, and, and in a stadium watching a concert. Like, obviously, it's got to be slow and steady. And you also have to have the ability to pivot if things aren't going well, because that can happen. So I think there's a lot that needs to be done, um, but doesn't mean you can't start that process. It just has to be done carefully. What do we know about these new variants and how they affect younger people? Uh, any, any information there? Well, interestingly, earlier on, there was some thought that uh, the variant discovered in the UK would preferentially affect younger children. It's not entirely clear that that does. I think it actually probably affects populations the same way as, let's just call it the garden variety, COVID-19 would as well. I think what's still up for debate is the severity of illness. There's some, for lack of a better word, poor data that demonstrates that the variant discovered in the UK may portend a worse outcome. In all fairness, so when you look at that data, it's there's still a lot to leave that's to be desired for. It's not it's not the cleanest data. I don't think you can make that assessment based on the data that's available. Certainly, it's an unanswered question. And again, it goes back to that first point of hey, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, we should proceed with caution here. Uh, I know you got to run, doctor. Last question about these variants, uh, variants rather. Uh, how many are here now? Are you expecting more of these? Uh, I don't know if we're expecting more. Like they've got to get in somehow, right? Some, I mean, sure, they can mutate here in Canada. We can have our own homegrown variant, and that's that's always a possibility. But a lot of this is going to be imported from other areas, and. Uh, our current travel measures will certainly reduce the risk of that happening, like significantly reduce the risk of that happening. It's not perfect, but it will certainly reduce the risk. I would even say before we had those additional travel measures, our quarantine act cushioned us from importing a ton of cases. Of course, it wasn't perfect. I mean, we know it wasn't perfect, but just that alone really softened the blow. First of all, it decreased a lot of travel. And secondly, you know, people had to quarantine at home. Uh, and yes, we know lots of people didn't adhere to that quarantine, but it did it did cushion the blow for us. Uh, these current travel measures will further cushion the blow. I know it's not ideal, but, but um, it's still a pretty ugly world out there. And that's going to help us by not importing more cases. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we really need to do much, much, much better in keeping these cases under control in Canada. And it's just going to be, all I'm saying is it's going to be a bit harder to do so as this variant that was discovered in the UK uh, spreads more and more throughout the country. Uh, any advice for those that are waiting for vaccines to arrive and feeling fatigued? Stay the course. Easy to say, hard to do. Give me a break. What am I going to yeah. say? Stay the course. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, you know, certain things are, are under our control and certain things are beyond our control. And I think we focus on the things that are under our control because, you know, international procurement of vaccines give me a break i mean this is above many of our pay grades and uh, we just have to do our best to stay safe maintain our mental health and our physical well-being until these are widely available here in canada dr isaac bogosh with us staff physician general internal medicine and infectious diseases associate professor university of toronto doctor thank you so much for your uh, time and insight much appreciated be well have a good one great to chat 
All right, let's move on. Uh, this is Black History Month, February, and an engineering scholarship for black students at McMaster uh, University has broken new ground. To talk more about all of this, Facio Inuin is with us and uh, president of the National Society of Black Engineers at McMaster and is with us now. Facio, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing very well. How's your day going? Uh, very well. We're trying. This is a big day uh, at Mac. Tell us first of all about the National Society of Black Engineers. Well, the National Society of Black Engineers was founded in 1971 by six guys who graduated from university all in the states for their university. After graduating, they went into the real world and quickly realized that there weren't many like them, and so they decided to form an organization that has grown to become one of the largest student organizations in the world, having over 500 chapters internationally. So yes, um, I'm just one of the many, many presidents who currently are who currently is in charge of the uh, chapter at McMaster University. So how, I mean, you know, we've heard various uh, anecdotal information about what it is like in, in, in an engineering course. It's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly difficult. Um, why is it different? Why is it more difficult for those in the black community? Explain that to those that may be uh, uneasy or unsure why this is needed. I think there's, looking, there's so many perspectives you can look at it from. I think one of the, the main things that stands out when you're a black student in engineering is that there isn't many like you. And a lot of times that can, depending on how you look at it, that can really stop the student from, you know, excelling in the program. You know, that can stop you from making friends. Like you said, engineering is not the easiest program, you know, to be in. And a lot of times, you know, when you feel very, when you feel isolated from the community that you're in, that can in a way hinder your academic success. And, yeah, that is one of the, the, the ways I see as a black student, how you can be affected. Another hand also is looking at it from, you know, a student that is not a university yet, choosing a program that you want to go into. A lot of times when you don't see people like yourself in, in your various industries, you don't necessarily imagine yourself, you know, in that, in that world. So if it wasn't for me being fortunate enough to have family members and, you know, people around me growing up that, you know, we're in STEM, we're in engineering. I probably would not have looked at engineering, um, if, I'm very, if I'm being very honest with you, as a career option for me, but I'm, I'm very glad that um, that was my case. And when I realized that wasn't the case with many, many people, um, I, I decided that, you know what, maybe it is time we do something about it. And luckily, I wasn't the only one who felt that way. We have uh, a nice um, black student community that felt like, you know what, maybe it's time for us to, to create a change and grow the number of students that we, students like ourselves who are in this um, faculty. How do you grow that? How do you encourage people to get involved? You do that by having initiatives. A lot of times it's just awareness and representation. You know, the whole essence of a scholarship being created is not financial aspect, definitely to help students out. But let's be honest, $2,500 compared to looking at like, you know, your entire four or five years in engineering, that that $2,500 isn't really a lot compared to what your tuition is in the grand scale of things. You know, although it does help, it's not, it's not the biggest thing that the scholarship brings. What the scholarship really brings is awareness, awareness to, you know, students from underprivileged communities, awareness to black students, awareness, you know, that, you know what, there's a, there's a school that you can go to that very does, very does support, very much supports you. There's a school that has, you know, a number of black students within the faculty and just encourages, encourages students to look at engineering as a career option rather than, you know, them not even knowing about it in any shape or form. You said the National Society of Black Engineers started back in 1971. Are you seeing progress? Are you seeing, you know, and especially what's happened in the last year or so in, in the conversations? Definitely. I mean, definitely. I mean, it went from being, you know, six, 
six um, six guys saying that they want to start an organization. And now, like I said, it's grown to have over definitely over 10,000 members internationally. And that is, I think that's a testament to, you know, the work that has been done. But unfortunately, the work has been done slowly. Um, but it, it, it's been, it's, we are growing, we are growing, but, you know, there as much as we need to do, we still need to, we still have a long way to go and as much help as possible that we can get on this journey and as much allies that we can have supporting us and really championing us. I think that that would definitely, you know, speed up our growth. But there's definitely has been progress, uh, maybe slowly, but for 1000% surely. What advice do you have for other students who were in the same situation you were and are looking at all this and going, oh, man, this program is, is challenging the way it is, but also uh, with the challenges that are faced within in your community? What advice do you have for those that are thinking about taking this leap? I definitely would say engineering is challenging, but it's not impossible. I mean, it's not, it, it is, it does require work, you know, uh, just like life, everything, every good thing requires work. It, engineering is not meant to be a walk in the park. There's a reason why, you know, engineering is one of the most prestigious, you know, programs that you can study at university. And so, yes, it is challenging. It's meant to be challenging, but you have to know that and believe it's not impossible. And definitely, you know, to the black students who maybe currently in a situation that I was in grade 12 looking for what to study, definitely look at this as a career option. Look at the possibilities of what it can bring. And even if you feel like, you know what, it's something that you can do, maybe, you know, systemic barriers that have been set, you know, not, not just within engineering, but within academia in general, you know, there are people in within the faculty, there are people, you know, that are studying engineering, we look like you, we're always there to support you, we're always, we will always be there to champion your, your voice, no matter what challenges that you face. So definitely do not let that be a hindrance. And I hope that, you know, the scholarship is bringing awareness. I hope that this scholarship is not just, um, you know, is is not just about the money. The whole act, the whole point of the scholarship was to raise awareness. The whole, whole aspect mm-hmm. of the scholarship was for it to, you know, reach reach those students and those underprivileged communities and make sure that they know that they will be coming to a school that welcomes them. They'll be coming to a school that supports them. And yeah, um, I'm looking forward to you know what the future holds of the scholarship and the the new initiatives and you know the the growth that that would happen just from the scholarship. It's just a the first step and, and uh, you know many more steps to be taken how can we find out about the scholarship where can we go you want to donate to the scholarship um the first thing you can do is check out our website at nesbemac.ca with n-s-b-e-m-a-m-a-c.ca another aspect you can go is you can follow our face our instagram page at nesbemac you can also like our facebook page also at nesbemac and follow our linkedin as well at nesbemac and you can get all the details regarding to the scholarship and how you can donate our goal is to raise sixty thousand five hundred dollars but currently right now I believe we're at 23% or 33% right now so definitely help us you know grow that amount out so that we can help you know future many many more um, students in, in the future years to come. Facio Inuan has been with us, president of the National Society of Black Engineers at McMaster University. A new engineering scholarship for black students at Mac has broken new ground. Thank you so much for the time Facio. Good luck with all of this. Be well. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Uh, As you know, and as we just uh, mentioned, uh, February is Black History Month, and we want to introduce you to Camille Karamali. He's a digital producer, uh, broadcast, uh, sorry, digital broadcast journalist with Global News, and has been working on a five-part series on anti-black racism. So joining us now, digital broadcast journalist with Global, uh, Camille Karamali. Camille, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. 
Yeah, doing quite well. Just chipping away at this five-part series. Uh, you know, we've got uh, one launching each day. So tomorrow is, uh, you know, black community members, black culture in the arts. But uh, what launched today was, uh, you know, black people in workspaces. And so we really took a deep dive. Uh, looking back at the George Floyd protests and now months later for Black History Month, did it move the needle forward? Did all those rallies and protests and people coming forward with their experiences uh, and personal stories of anti-black racism, uh, I'm sure you remember it all, it came in a, in a, in a giant wave. Did it change anything? So we revisit a lot of those um, you know, societal arenas and the same people that we met during that stretch in time and ask them that question. Did anything change for them in the months that followed after those protests? It was interesting because I remember chatting with with various people after the George George Floyd incident and, and asking them, do you think this is, you know, I mean, it's another scenario like this. Do you think this one is different? Do you think this situation in those eight minutes and 46 seconds we all saw, well, George Floyd uh, was basically murdered, um, that this will change things? Are, are, are we seeing change? Are people looking at this differently now? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that... Uh, the answer to that really varied based on who you spoke to. So in this five-part series, we look at black communities and black people in different arenas. So, um, you know, their relationship uh, with police, uh, schools, workplaces, the arts. And then Friday is the last one moving forward. What is being done right and what they feel like continue uh, needs to continue being done to move that needle forward. And so the majority just to sort of you know, I uh, don't want to put an entire blanket statement uh, because we spoke to over two dozen people, uh, many of them who we had already spoken to prior uh, in, the, in the summer and then are revisiting them, asking, them que- asking that same question. But for the most part, the answer was the needle moved forward a little bit. Uh, you know, every time a movement happens or a racial reckoning happens, uh, every few, few years, unfortunately, usually due to the death, of, of a black person in America at the hands of police or even sometimes here in Canada, um, it, uh, it, it moves the needle a little bit is what we're hearing. So what's airing today is anti-black racism and, and in, in the workplace. So what we do, and I'm sure you'll remember this, uh, you know, even uh, Trudeau came out condemning anti-black racism and then the federal government said that they would have an entrepreneurship program uh, in September that launched to support uh, black-owned uh, businesses. And so we spoke and sat down to a couple of small black business owners, and even they said, you know, they had not seen any money from the federal government after that promise. That was supposed to be their lifeboat uh, and really, uh, you know, uh, really help them up from sinking and, and losing their business. And there's they, they just go to the website and it just says that, there's no details on getting any funding for black-owned businesses and entrepreneurs, and so they feel like they're not going to survive the pandemic. And then, you know, the other side also looks at um, black and, and BIPOC people in corporate settings. And there's, uh, you know, we speak to some experts who say that really they hit this glass ceiling. Uh, there's a lot of front-facing jobs with diversity so that customers look like a, com- a company is diverse. But as soon as you start climbing the corporate ladder, uh, there's many experiences about people, uh, racialized people hitting glass ceilings. And then you look at a lot of the boardrooms, even in our own industry, in the media industry, you know, we'll, we'll call them out. A lot of the, the, the board of directors 
are all white as well. So, you know, they, they look at how diversity needs to be systemic in corporate settings as well. So we look at those two avenues, uh, small businesses and corporate settings. How has COVID-19 made this even more challenging? How has it made it even more difficult for some of these vulnerable communities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's been several studies showing that COVID-19 has been prevalent in a lot of racialized communities. Um, But, you know, it just sort of exacerbates the issues that already existed. So a lot of people and, you know, not to discount uh, that uh, people across uh, the color spectrum are facing very uh, real financial difficulties. That is obviously very true. But already, um, you know, these communities start from uh, a couple of steps back from behind. Uh, behind the start line and are are already uh, saying that, you know, they feel like um, these issues of uh, uh, just anti-black racism are exacerbated due to the pandemic. So, um, for example, the one small business owner who really stuck out to me in this piece, uh, you know, she sells black beauty products and, and so many of her customers who are black, who are from racialized communities, um, they, they're, they're jobless now. And so they can't afford any of the products or even continue to shop there. And so her business, she feels like, and the interview really ends in tears uh, because she said, you know, she's a young entrepreneur and she just took over the family business that has been uh, passed down for a couple of generations from her immigrant parents. And she said, you know, it just fell into my hands and I'll, ha- I'll have to hold the responsibility of my family's business going under. So a really sad story there. Hmm. Uh, I remember talking after the, the George Floyd uh, death uh, to a member of Black Lives Matter and, and again asking them if if this was different, if things will change now. And, and one thing she pointed out that, that she noticed and how it was different uh, this time or, or, or with George Floyd was that the, the demonstrations, the supporters, the uh, the support, came from all races it just wasn't the black community did you find that yeah um you know it's uh even myself as a brown person uh you know we kind of had to check ourselves as well um and see how we could be allies uh, because you know the plights of um black people versus brown people versus you know uh, people who face islamophobia things like that you know, they're all different examples. They're all different instances, and one is not the same as the other. So, you know, if you're not black, well, really, it's about having conversations with people who are and asking them how they can be an ally. So, you know, I remember even back then doing a couple of stories about um, allyship and and what that means and, and how to sort of, um, uh, you know, check your privilege and, and find out how you can be an ally to these communities that that need it, um, as well as learning about terms like tokenism or gaslighting. You know, those are terms that uh, I think a lot of people, um, at least in some of my social circles, really weren't aware of the true meaning of it. And, and so we did some pieces to also learn about what those are and, and how, you know, there's subtle forms of microaggressions and subtle forms of racism that, that can take place that's not as prevalent these days in some capacities. How do we find this series, Camille? Yeah, you can find it online on globalnews.ca. It's also this uh, particular uh, episode on racism in the workplace has been airing this morning, and it's going to air again on Global News at 530. But, uh, yeah, if you can't catch that, then I, I, I encourage you to check it out online.
Camille Caramali has been with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News. You can find his special report not only on Global News 530 and 6, but also on the website at globalnews.ca, as Camille has the very difficult discussions that are making us all take a look in the mirror. Camille, thank you so much for the time. Great work. Good luck with this. Hey, thank you for this uh, very important conversation. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.